only thing we have to fear is fear itself. <laughs> the National Weather Service has issued a severe thunderstorm warning. Welcome. Welcome. To the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast. Where prepping doesn't have to be complicated or expensive. Coming to you from a well-defended off-grid compound high in the mountains. Coming to you from his Florida room in Richmond, Virginia. Neither off-grid nor well-defended, unless you count as chickens and cats. Here is your host, Keith. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast. My name is Keith. Episode 61. Today is November 9th, 2023. It's been a while since I've had a chance to post something. Unfortunately, my father is very ill. He has been in the hospital for about a week now, so I've been spending most of my free time at the hospital with him. Folks, do me a favor. If you enjoy the podcast, if you like the content, please consider liking and sharing the podcast. Let somebody else know. Send them a link. I really do appreciate it. Let's talk about the corn index. Like I said, the last podcast, somebody sent me an email. They really liked the corn index. So let's uh, let's revisit that. Last time I posted, corn was 62 cents per can. When I and back in the day, whatever, 18 months ago, it was 48 cents a can. So you've got a, a bit of an increase there. Just check now at my local Walmart, that same can of corn is 64 cents per can. So it's jumped up. Two cents in the last 10, 12 days, whenever I posted last. So when I purchased 100 cans of corn, it was $48. If I had purchased that a week and a half ago, it was it would have been $62. Today, if I was to buy 100 cans, it would be $64. To me, that's a significant increase over 18 months. So there's your inflation. So there's your corn index for the week. So we all know what's going on with Israel and Hamas and what they're doing in in Gaza and in Gaza City. I want to turn it around a little bit and talk about the protests over the weekend, this past weekend, at the White House. Roughly 100,000 people went to D.C., give or take, and it was a pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas march. It turned violent later on when several hundred protesters tried to breach the gate at the White House. Now, this isn't people just waving flags and chanting. These people were physically trying to break in to the White House grounds. The gates were, uh, they're very strong, but they were bending quite a bit. Secret Service obviously was on the inside. Several people climbed up and were waving their flags. But it appears that no one actually breached the outer perimeter of the White House. I can't remember the last time... That happened. I know there's been isolated incidents where somebody scaled the fence and they've been running around on the on the lawn. Secret Service tackled them. One time they sent a canine after to bite the person. How crazy is that when these people get whipped up in such a frenzy that they are physically going to try to break the perimeter of the White House? Who knows what would have happened if they actually gained access to the grounds? I don't know if they would have been stupid enough to run up to the White House and try to get in, try to break some windows. And at that point, what does Secret Service do? What do the Marine Guards do? I don't know the protocol, but I can imagine that the use of deadly force would have been justified if they're trying to break into the White House. Found it absolutely 
fascinating that these people thought that was the right thing to do. And of course, the media really downplayed this attempted break-in to the White House. And in fact, apparently only one person was arrested out of all the people that tried to do that. And it was some sort of vandalism charge, but it was one person. So one person out of the several hundred that were physically trying to gain access to the White House grounds, one person was, was charged with vandalism. Nobody else was charged with attempted, I don't know whatever federal statute it would be, other than just a simple vandalism. I'm not sure it's like breaking and entering, but I'm pretty sure you can't break down the gates to the White House and try to gain access to the grounds. Pretty sure that's not that's not uh, not legal. Another thing that really just absolutely floored me was that I learned today that there were photographers embedded with Hamas, freelance photographers that were hired by CNN and Reuters on October the 7th. So we're a little over a month now embedded with Hamas to actually be there when they broke down the barriers, the barricades, when they actually, the terrorists came into Israel, followed the terrorists, took videos, took photos of them, kidnapping people, shooting people, raping women, burning homes down, dragging soldiers out of tanks, Israeli soldiers out of tanks. And they were posting this video and posting these photographs. There was a photograph where three photographers were taking photos of an Israeli woman who was being kidnapped, who was sandwiched in between two terrorists on a motorcycle as they were taking her back into Gaza. You've got to be kidding me. I'm not calling for a protest of CNN because they only have about 15 viewers as it is. What in the world are you thinking? And nobody's going to talk about this, but how sick do CNN and Reuters have to be to have these folks embedded with the terrorists? I heard an analogy the other day. Can you imagine there were photographers embedded with some of the 19 hijackers on 9-11? Well, they'd all be dead, but can you imagine them like live streaming from the planes? Can you imagine them live streaming from the roof of one of the, the, the World Trade Centers when the plane hits? Can you imagine them being at the Pentagon? Absolutely outrageous, and they're not being held accountable for this. Absolutely ghoulish. Can I use that word? Absolutely ghoulish. I cannot believe they would do that just to get a photograph of what was going on. Here's the next question. Apparently, this was a surprise attack. Now, Hamas knew it was going to happen, and there were other people in Palestine that knew it was going to happen. But what did this person do? What did somebody call CNN in Atlanta or get a hold of some foreign desk in Palestine or London or whatever saying, hey, I've got a really good camera and you might want to hire me for the next week or two because something's going to happen. All right, Jimmy, here's $500. We're going to pay you this. We're going to pay you that. And then all of a sudden, Jimmy's posting these photos online of this, of this attack of Israel and all of the people that were murdered. So somebody knew something was going to happen, and they went ahead and hired these people to document this attack. Absolutely incomprehensible. The videos you see of these people walking around, tearing down posters of Israelis that have either been taken hostage or are missing and assumed they've been taken hostage by Hamas. These people are walking around college campuses, walking around the street, you know, just streets, taking them off of buildings, taking them off of lampposts. I saw a video today. There was this girl at USC. So she's walking through the hallway, University of Southern California, 
blonde and blue, about as American as you can get. She's as Muslim as like my neighbors are. Is it fashionable to do that? Is it cool to do that? That she's going to go around taking down posters of people that are missing and they, they laugh about it. They just don't care. I wonder what her parents think. No, no, never mind. I, I probably, her parents probably applaud the fact that their daughter is being involved. You know, she's a, it's not even a social, she's a, she's a social justice warrior. She's, you know, very, very impassioned by the, the, uh, the plight of the Palestinians that she's going to go down ripping down posters about people who are being held hostage. Granted, a poster in a hallway in the economic department at the University of Southern California is not going to bring back Joe, who's been kidnapped and is being held hostage by Hamas. But it's still the fact that she thinks it's okay to take down these posters and not, and not care. Apparently, it's fashionable to protest against Israel. The number and the amount of anti-Semitic protests, people saying things on the news, people on the internet, it is so disproportionate to the amount of stories that you see and that you hear about Hamas. The media, obviously way over to the left, for every story about an Israeli being killed, families being shot, businesses being burned down, people being raped. For every one of those stories you hear or see on the mainstream media, you will see 20 stories of civilians allegedly being killed as collateral damage in Palestine or near Gaza City. Israel, it makes no sense for Israel to target civilians. As far as the court of public opinion or whatever you want to call it, that is the worst thing they could do. I can guarantee you that the Israeli military is not saying, let's drop a bomb on a bunch of kids playing in a park. That's the last thing they want to do. What happens in war? In war, people break things and people get killed. That's what war is. And that's what's happening now. As far as the PR and the optics, it does Israel no good to actually target a bunch of civilians. Now, Hamas will put the rocket launchers behind a school, behind a hospital. And when it happens, when a bomb is dropped in that area, the school is damaged, the hospital's damaged, and all you see on the news, parents with little children that have been injured, and that's all the news is going to pick up. They're not going to talk about the fact that Hamas had the rocket launchers behind the school, in a neighborhood, in a park. All they want to show you is the, the children or the non-combatants in Palestine that are being injured. Speaking of people being injured, what is going on with people who want to sit in the middle of roads, highways, and protest no oil or whatever? Was it the no, no oil group? These people sit in a road and they block traffic and people just sit there and honk their horns. That's been going on a while. Well, people all over the world are getting fed up with this and they're getting out of their vehicles. They're dragging these people over to the side of the road. Sometimes these people are being assaulted. They're being kicked and then drug over to the side of the road. And in many cases, the car, or the truck will move forward at about a mile an hour and it'll push the people down the road. They'll be like leaning up against the hood of the car or the truck as it moves at like one or two miles an hour down the road. There are several instances where these people will swarm around the car 
And the driver, in fear of their life, will accelerate and run some of them over. And then to hear the people screaming and yelling, Oh my God, did you see what he just did? He ran over somebody. As opposed to, I'm standing in the middle of a road, and I'm blocking traffic, and I got hit by a car. Their thinking is so warped, they're upset that a car is driving on the road. They're upset that a car is doing what it's supposed to do. They're not upset that you're sitting in the middle of an interstate. Sitting in the middle of an interstate is something you should not do. You are not supposed to sit in the middle of an interstate. You are supposed to drive on an interstate. And these people get so and so wrapped around the axle when something happens, when someone gets pushed off to the side. And in some cases, unfortunately, people get run over and they get injured or killed. I know I spoke last podcast about my get home bag. And with everything that's been going on with my dad, I have not had the opportunity to do much more research into what I'm actually going to put into my get home bag. And I haven't really even had a chance to look at the bags themselves. I've been busy picking up leaves in my spare time in my yard. That's going to be an ongoing thing for the next several weekends. I need to also winterize the chicken coop. Apparently, I was told that if acorns fall early or a lot of acorns fall at the same time, I don't know. That means like a really harsh winter. There's something about a woolly worm. If you see woolly worms before Thanksgiving, that means it's going to be a really harsh winter, which is kind of surprising because here in central Virginia, we don't have very harsh winters. But I'm going to err on the side of caution. I'm going to go ahead and try to find, I guess, a, a reasonable compromise when it comes to insulating my chicken coop. I don't want to go overboard and actually put like real, the pink insulation in there. I'll have to cover whatever insulation I use. I'll have to cover it up because the chickens will eat the insulation that will kill them. So I'll put it, I guess, between the studs and I'm going to have to put some sort of either heavy cardboard, poster board, or even maybe some plywood over it to keep the chickens from eating it. But I knew I do need to go ahead and, and, and do something for that. Let's talk just for a second about all the craziness in the world with Hamas and the Israelis and the protests and the open border. I talked about it last time. There is no reason to believe that there will not be a terrorist attack here where I am in the United States. Now, there's folks that listen to me that are all over the world. Terrorist attacks happen in a lot of different countries. It's not just here. Sweden, Norway, the folks that are up in Scandinavia, Denmark, it happens there. And it's just a matter of time. I don't know where it's going to happen. I don't know about sleeper cells and all that good kind of stuff. They're waiting for a, you know, someone to say something, waiting for an email. But at least sleeper cells, especially with the hijackers on 9-11, they, other than the folks that got on the plane together, they were not aware of the other sets of hijackers. Because if, if a couple hijackers got caught, they would not have any information and they would not give up the information about the other hijackers because they honestly didn't know there were other hijackers. And I can't imagine what went through their mind when the second plane headed towards the tower and they saw one of the other towers already on fire. They probably picked up on it pretty quick that there was another set of hijackers that uh, that, that hit the tower you know, earlier that morning. But I don't know when, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And in my opinion, you need, you need to be prepared. Now, what does preparation look like for a terrorist attack? I'm really not sure. But for me, being prepared means I have food, water, my everyday carry bag, my get home bag, uh, in a, at work, I'm traveling, 
I'm 30 miles away and something happens where I am, I'm, the roads are blocked, I'm not able to, my vehicle's disabled, whatever it happens to be, and I need to get home, that's what my get home bag is going to do for me. I'm also going to be armed. Now, I am not one that advocates violence. However, my opinion is if you have to use violence, if you are forced into a situation where you have to use violence, you make it swift and you make it decisive. If you have to use lethal force to protect yourself or your family, you don't there's no no such thing as a warning shot. There's no such thing as you better get out of here or I'll call the police. If I am faced with a deadly force situation, a life or death situation that somebody is coming after me or my family, I'm not going to wait for the, you know, the first shot to be fired. If I decide they are an imminent threat to myself or my family, I will take action and I will use the force necessary to stop that threat. Plain and simple. Let me give you an example. In police academies, they teach what's called the 21 foot rule. It's been proven time and time again. If you have a police officer, or just say anybody, anybody with a gun, so we have a good guy with a gun, and the gun is in a holster, maybe it's at the low ready position, which means it's, you know, it's kind of pointed at the ground in front of them, but they have, you know, they've had a good grip on it, and somebody with a knife is 21 feet away. Almost every single time, the person with the knife is able to traverse that 21 feet before the person is able to raise the firearm acquire the target, and pull the trigger. I know that sounds silly, but you ought to look into it, do your research, get it from multiple sources, go to YouTube. They may even have it. When I saw that, initially, I'm like, there's no way. 21 feet, that's plenty of time. Let's talk about action versus reaction. And I've seen this done several times. There are situations where take, I I saw it actually actually at at some sort of self-defense tactic school. Two people up on a stage, good guy and bad guy. The good guy had his gun in a holster and they were using like cap guns. So the good guy had a gun in his holster. The bad guy had his gun in the holster. The good guy was facing the bad guy. So the bad guy had his back to the good guy. So the good guy was facing him. He was looking at the back of the bad guy. The bad guy told the good guy that what he was going to do He was going to draw his weapon, he was going to turn, and he was going to shoot the good guy before the good guy got a shot off. Now you're thinking, please, he's he's telling him what he's going to do. He even had the good guy take his weapon out of the holster, his cap gun, and put it at the low ready. So it's kind of pointing at the ground, and it's going to take less time to acquire the target and and fire the, the weapon than obviously the two or three tenths of a second to get it out of the holster and bring it up. So he told the good guy what he was going to do. Almost every single time, the bad guy was able to unholster, turn, do a 180, acquire the good guy, and pull the trigger on the cap gun before the good guy was able to raise his firearm and pull the trigger on his cap gun. Again, you're like, there's no way. It's all about action versus reaction. Even the good guy knew what was going to happen. As soon as he sees the bad guy remove the firearm from the holster or raise his hand and put his hand on the holster, he sees that, his eye sees it, tells his brain, again, this is tenths of a second, hundredths of a second, hey, that guy put his hand on his gun and he told me he's going to shoot me. So we already know what's going to happen. So, hey, hand on gun. So now the good guy needs to bring his gun up. 
in the two or three tenths of a second that it takes the good guy to react. The bad guy has already got the gun out of the holster and starting to turn. Now, the bad guy knows exactly what he's going to do. As they're bringing the guns up, the bad guy is able to get the shot off almost every single time before the good guy. Now, take a situation where the good guy is looking at the back of the bad guy, but the bad guy has both of his hands hidden. The good guy doesn't know what's going to happen. The good guy's like, get on the ground, uh, drop the gun if you've got a gun, whatever it happens to be. Can you imagine what's going to happen when the bad guy just turns and shoots? You know, he's got it at his belly. He's got it tucked into his waistband. Every single time, the bad guy's going to win that fight. So I guess what I'm saying is if you are put in a situation and you determine that it is a situation where it's a deadly force situation where imminent harm is going to happen to you or your family member, whatever it happens to be, you need to be very, very decisive and you need to be swift and take swift action. If the person, you see the person coming at you with the knife and you're within that 21 foot, then you're probably going to get stabbed at least once. I see videos all the time where police officers, suicidal, put down the knife, put down the knife. Officers five feet away, 10 feet away, 15 feet away. The bad guy is able to close that distance, even with the officer with his hand on his firearm, ready to go. Action versus reaction. It takes just that two, three tenths of a second to realize that guy's got a knife. Now you already know he's got a knife, but your eye tells your brain he's raising the knife. He's stepping towards me. Another tenth of a second. I need to raise my firearm. I need to acquire the target and it's too late. The bad guy already knows what he's going to do with the knife. The good guy has to understand, see, understand, and then realize that he is in danger, then he raises his firearm to protect himself. And many times it's too late. But if you get a chance, look at that. It's it's fascinating to look at situations with the 21-foot rule, uh, action versus reaction. All right, I'm going to close with this. A lot of the information that we're seeing on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, I'm not a big Elon Musk fan. You know, he's got SpaceX. He's got the electric cars running on, running all over the world, the Teslas. But I'll tell you what, I think he has done a very good service, at least here in the United States, to the First Amendment. I can't even imagine the information, the news stories, the truth that is actually being shared on Twitter that never would have seen the light of day under its previous owners. There's always people working behind the scenes, working behind his back, trying to shadow ban people, trying to throttle people, and you know, keep their audience small. And I'm sure that's being done all the time, but there's still a lot of information that's able to get out there. Without X as an outlet, so much of this stuff about the Middle East, we would not be hearing about. We wouldn't have a chance to make our own opinions. So I guess in a sense, I like the fact that he purchased Twitter, now X, and a lot of people are able to exchange a lot of, a lot of ideas. Quick point, the manifesto for the Nashville school shooter was released two days ago. It is being censored and removed from Facebook posts and posts on YouTube. It's not being removed on Twitter. It's barely being reported by the media. So here's a quick sidebar. I knew, well, okay, I didn't know word for word, but I had a very good inkling on what the manifesto was going to be about. So when it came out, probably me and millions of other people went, 
Yeah, so we knew it was going to be something like that. But it's the fact that it was kept from everybody and then it was leaked and everyone's like, well, yeah, that's pretty much what we thought it was going to be. And I think it's the fact that it was it was kept from people. I think that's what got everybody upset and then even a little more upset when we realized that a lot of us were correct or fairly close on the, not necessarily the content, but the theme, I guess, of the manifesto or whatever you know, whatever you want to call it. Okay. If you want to email me, practicalpreppodcast at gmail.com. And again, I'm on the X, I'm on the Twitter, prep underscore podcast. And you can always search common sense practical prepper or common sense practical prepper podcast. That'll get you That'll get you to where you need to be. Again, folks, consider liking the podcast. Consider sharing it with some friends. I really appreciate it. I will try to get another podcast up maybe in the next week, but it really depends on how my father does in the hospital. As always, folks, please be careful out there. Take care of one another. And until next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Sense Practical Prepper Podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. While you're at it, help spread the word by leaving a rating and review. 